The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and Disciple First hosted a track called Developing a Disciple Making Culture. That's where today's audio was recorded. Make sure to go online and download a free ebook from their team called Invest in a Few, which is about practical ways to disciple people by investing into just a few. It's available for free at discipleship.org slash disciple first. Discipleship.org slash disciple first. Here's today's audio. Okay, everybody, we're about to crank back up. Thank you for being here. And uh, if you've been with us for some time, we've been doing a lot of work, haven't we? We've been rolling up our sleeves. We've been working. Uh, and you guys have done a great, great job. I'm really super proud of your engagement, working really hard. We've been talking about culture, and we said there are three essential elements of disciple-making culture. That is a disciple-making pastor, a disciple-making pathway, and disciple-making people or people that will multiply. And so we've covered uh, pastor, uh, the big picture on culture and assessing culture yesterday. We covered what does a disciple-making pastor do. We talked about convictions and practices of a disciple-making pastor. Then this morning, we just got out of the session on pathway, and we did a lot of analysis on the four steps. What is a product and what is a pathway, all right? So hopefully you have done, you did your work on plotting um, your programming. The goal is you you want to, uh, line up your programming in such a way to move people from far from God to coming to faith in Jesus and connecting with the church to gr- being trained and equipped and then moving to, to being a multiplier. Okay, that's the, uh, that's the end goal. And so um, let me just uh, give you a, a little more clarification and maybe answer some questions because I took some really great questions during the break and you may have some other questions. So we want to do that. Then I'm going to pitch it over to uh, Dr. Moody uh, to talk a little bit about how do you, uh, what are some four necessary steps you must do uh, moving forward. Uh, John Wesley uh, made the great statement. He said, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. I love that. He said, man, give me 100 men that are fired up, equipped, sent out, multiplying people. And he said, we'll shake the gates of hell with that. Um, that's always been a motivational statement to me because I, I've just asked God to give me a hundred men and women that have that kind of passion. And I believe that. I believe that that will change everything. Just think in your church, if you had 10 people that were fired up for the Lord, walking with God, sharing their faith, discipling people, multiplying, how, what a difference would just 10 people like that make? Or 50 people or a hundred people like that. That would be a complete game changer. You know, uh, John Wesley really single-handedly saved England from a bloody revolution like what happened in France. And the way that he did that is that he uh, had this process. He would go out under duress really at the beginning and he would preach to the coal miners in outdoor preaching. You know, that was not sophisticated. That was not anything that anybody really did. If you're going to preach, you preached in a pulpit lifted up in a cathedral of some kind. But he realized that the lost people were never coming to the cathedral. They were out in the coal mines. So he would go and he would preach to the coal miners. And these coal miners would get saved. And then he would bring them into what he called societies, which were large worship environments. And uh, there they would hear music sung that was had lyrics out of scripture or, or theological truths. And then somebody would preach the word to them. And in those societies, they would, they would begin to grow. And then they were asked to be involved in groups. And these groups were called classes. And the classes were men and women mixed together, about 12 to 15 in number. And they were there to really discuss what was talked about in the large group setting and to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to help one another, to apply what they learned. And then there were some that he took them to another group. And that other group was called the bands. And bands were men with men and women with women for the purpose of training them to multiply and reproduce. And these bands, then he sent them out to, to open air preach and to start societies and classes and bands alike. And this is really what 
swept across England and uh, you know, really brought about that great awakening in England and saved them from that bloody revolution. Um, you think about uh, St. Patrick. He did the same thing. When St. Patrick went back to Ireland, not, not as first a captive, but now as a missionary, he did the same thing. He gathered people together uh, in preaching, and then when they would come to faith, he would put them in groups, and then of those, he would select men and women in separate groups, and he would train them to multiply. And he uh, really, you know, when you see the whole idea of St. Patrick driving out the snakes, that was symbolic of driving out the druid, uh, demonic worship out of Ireland and making it a Christian nation. So my point is that these men over the history, over history have used this idea of moving people from far from God into various groups that move them down to multiplying and sending out. That was the model that was used. And where did they get this model? Well, they got this model from Jesus, that this was the exact model that Jesus used. Um, it's interesting, when you look at this explore phase, uh, really you see this in John, John 1, 39, when Jesus, uh, they, uh, John the Baptist is preaching, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and, and John and Andrew go after him, and he looks at, behind him, and he sees these men following him, and he says, What are you looking for? And they say, well, where are you staying? And he said, come and see, come and see. This phase, come and see, really uh, begins at John 1.39. And you see this all the way through really the first 18 months of Jesus' ministry. 18 months. You see him uh, taking these guys and then he has an encounter. Andrew takes him to Peter, right? And he changes Peter's name. And then all of a sudden they meet uh, Philip. And uh, Philip comes to faith in Jesus. Then they go back up to the northern part of uh, the Galilee area where these guys were from, from Bethsaida, is actually where their hometown was. And there he meets Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says, you know, uh, I'm not going to believe it. What good could come out of Nazareth, right? And, uh, and then when Jesus encounters him, he said, I saw you under the tree. And, and he goes, wow, you are the son of God. You has this great dramatic conversion. That's what I call the starting five, right? That's his starting five, like a basketball team. That's his starting five. He takes them to, uh, and Jesus turns water to wine in, uh, in, in Capernaum. No, in... Uh, Cana, thank you. Somebody help me. In Cana, right? And then from there, he takes him all the way down to Jerusalem for the festival. And that's where he has this encounter with Nicodemus at night. And he says, you must be born again. And then instead of going back to Jericho, trans, you know, up along the uh, Jordan River and, and across like you'd normally do, he takes him straight up the gut, up the hills and mountains of Samaria to a woman at the well where she leaves after this encounter to Jesus and she says, come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. When Philip told Nathaniel, he said, come and see this man who we believe is the Messiah. So this, this phrase, come and see, is really the first 18 months of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry is inviting people to come and to see who he is, to taste and see who he is, whether they're religious or irreligious, men or women, insiders or outsiders, uh, skeptics or critics or believers. He's, he's inviting them to come and see. So a church that is, is a disciple-making church is going to do something to help people come and see. That's why we call this the explore phase because they're exploring, right? They're, they're kicking the tires of the Christian faith. They're bringing their questions and their doubts and their problems. And you're inviting them to come and taste and see that the Lord is good, right? And so this is how Jesus started his ministry with this come and see phase. Then the next stage, uh, the next pivot point we find in, in Matthew 4, uh, 18 and 19. After about 18 months of ministry, Jesus walks along the seashore and he finds Andrew and Peter, James and John. They're working their boats, right? Which implies, by the way, that what were they doing during the last 18 months? They were fishing, right? They would follow Jesus and then they'd go make some money. And they would go follow Jesus and they'd go make them work for their dad. And I don't know if he was with him on the weekends. We're not really sure, told how that worked out. But they're certainly in the family business here. And Jesus walks by and he says, uh, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Right? And at that point, something tangible changes. They leave their nets. 
they leave their boats, they leave their father, and they go with Jesus. So, so some, some level of um, commitment increase happened there, some level of, of uh, a cost happened, and that they left something behind to give full time to following Jesus. And so from this point on, if you look, uh, Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Dan Spader says he leads them immediately on six fishing expeditions, fishing for men expeditions. And uh, you can go through in the Gospel of Luke and find those out. You see uh, um, Jesus, the miraculous catch, you know, that happens in Peter's workplace. You see a demon-possessed guy in the synagogue of Capernaum that Jesus cast out the demon. You see... Uh, uh, the, the guys luring the, their crippled friend through the roof. All that happens during this phase right here. And what's happening with these disciples at this phase is that they are, they are publicly, they're connecting with Jesus. Okay? That is, they're publicly identifying. They've left their family uh, work, which was their identity, and now they're connecting publicly with Jesus. They are connecting in community with each other because now they're, they're the Jesus guys. They're the Jesus people. They're the guys shadowing Jesus all the time. And they're connecting with a cause. That is that they're not doing the miracles. They're not doing the heavy lifting, but they're there to pick up scraps of bread and do some crowd control and bring people that, you know, they're doing, all, they're the ushers and, the, you know, they're just doing all the work that needs to be done. They're involved in the cause, but they're not doing the work of it yet. Jesus is doing it all. They're watching Jesus, right? But they're involved in the cause. So churches that are disciple-making churches, they will help people explore the, the claims of Christ, and then they will try to move them across the faith line to a point where they are now connected with Jesus publicly through baptism. They're connected with the church. They're joining the church. They're connected in some kind of group or community, and they're connected in some level of service. What we found is that those are like four legs of a chair. Yeah, how many times people have left your church and said, well, I just never could get connected? Don't you just hate it when somebody says that? I hate that, all right? But what we, we go, what does that even mean that you don't feel connected? Well, what we said is they don't have the four legs of the stool down on the floor yet. They may have been saved, but they're not connected until they're saved and they're baptized, and then they're saved and baptized, and they're in a group. And if they're saved and baptized in a group and serving in some capacity, then that's like four legs of the chair on the ground. They, that is as good a connection as you can possibly make. And the... the uh, ability for them to stay with you over the long haul increasingly goes up if you get those four legs down. If, you're, if you don't get them serving and in a group, chances are they'll, they'll be gone. Uh, and I got people in my church like that, that I'm trying to get them to get all, all the four legs down. And we tell them when they join, hey, chances are if you don't get these four things down, you probably won't stay here. And we want you to stay here. So we urge them and we, our whole onboarding process is to get those four things down. That's our whole focus is. All right, now the next stage, Jesus does this for about six months, roughly six months. By the way, I'm getting these dates uh, from uh, Thomas and Gundry's um, uh, uh, synoptics uh, of the Gospels, where there is some timeline there. Uh, they, they estimate these dates based on festivals that are mentioned in the Gospels. Uh, also, uh, Spader's done some good work on these timelines, and so I think they're they're rough, but they're as good as we can do. Yes, that's right. That's right. Thank you. So this would be the phrase, phrase follow me. Then the next uh, phase is Mark 3, 13 and 14. And this is where Jesus spends all night uh, and he's going to select uh, some leaders to train. So he spends all night and he, he calls the 12 to him and it says so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So this we call this the be with me phase. And the whole point of this phase is to train these men to be leaders, right? And a more intensive training than what they've had before. And yeah, they've been shadowing Jesus here, but now they're actually going to be trained, equipped. And so this is what we call the training phase. So I'm going to put train. Like I said, Luke 640, when a disciple, when he is fully trained, will be like his master. Uh, equip. So he's equipping them to do what? He's equipping them to multiply. So he's going he's to model, they're going to follow Jesus on a tour through several villages. And he's going to send them out two by two. And they're going to do just what he did. And they're going to come back and report. So it's watch me do, 
now you do and I watch you and now you go show someone else. And so this is that training phase. And again, this is a higher level of commitment. Jesus is now sending them out and they're going to fly solo doing what he has been doing. Do you see the commitment level? Just that's scary, right? And then he goes, by the way, don't, he gives a whole list of what to take and what not to take. And by the way, they're going to, they're going to abuse you. And gonna, I don't know that you, you get a lot of takers on visitation night if you told them all that, right? But, but Jesus is sending them out to do this. And then the last phase, I know I'm kind of moving quickly through this because we've got a lot to cover, but last one is Luke 9, 23. Uh, we're here, this is uh, Jesus saying, you know, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And by the way, this is, this, this is another six months roughly in the grow phase there, roughly about another six months. And then from this point forward, he says, come after me and bear fruit. Come after me and bear fruit. At this point, he talks about sacrifice, suffering, self-denial, all the hard sayings of Jesus. You know, if you, if you do not hate your father and mother, you're not worthy of me. Uh, if you not give all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. These hard sayings of Jesus, almost all of them are in this phase of time. Almost all of them. And the reason is because here he realizes that for the mission to move forward, there must be people that are committed to that mission that are willing to pay the price to make disciples, that will make disciples. So this is roughly about nine months, and then Jesus uh, heads to the cross, and that's why he says in, in John 17, verse 3, he said, Father, I have accomplished all that you sent me out to do. Why? Because he's seeing this movement happen. I love in Luke, Luke uh, 10, uh, he says this, the, uh, the 12 turn into 72 in Luke chapter 10. And you see, I think it's in chapter 10, verse 20 or 23, it says that Jesus is filled with joy. Why, it's the only place in the Bible where it says Jesus is filled with joy. Why is he filled with joy? Because he's seeing the movement happen. Now they're in the fourth generation, Jesus, to the 12, to the 72, and to those that they're preaching to. It has now reached the fourth generation. That's why Jesus could say in John 17, verse 3, I've accomplished what you sent me to do. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. What he's accomplished is setting the movement afoot. I've, I've developed leaders that are now multiplying to the third and fourth generation. Now I can go to the cross and I can pay the penalty for man's sin because I know that the message will be carried to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. They carried that to the ends of the earth. Now, let me, uh, let me just show you something uh, with this diagram. I just want to overlay the life of Christ on this, the ministry of Jesus. And you can see how this was a pattern of Jesus. This was the ministry of Jesus. So when that's why uh, St. Patrick did that. That's why Wesley did that. That's why uh, we should do it. Okay? We should move people through these, this process. Um, let me draw a little line that looks something like this, okay? Now, if you uh, look at the bottom part of this line, what I want you to notice is that as you move people through these stages, the, uh, the commitment level increases, right? So this bottom part is commitment level. So it's not a lot of commitment for people to come and see, right? It doesn't cost you anything to come and see. But a greater commitment, of course, to step across the faith line and be a part of a church and be engaged in a church, that certainly is another greater commitment. But then an even greater level of commitment to be agree to be discipled and to be in a group with high accountability and being trained to multiply. And then your greatest level of commitment is when you're a multiplier, when you are investing your life for the cause. And uh, it's going to cost you and you're going to be disappointed. And you may be deployed to plant churches and, and go overseas and share the gospel. It, it may disrupt your life completely, but you're doing it because you're committed to King Jesus. So the commitment level increases, okay, as you go through. Because of that, the top part of this line is the number of people that are willing to make that commitment. And you can see that it narrows as you go through, right? So a lot of people may be willing to explore Fewer people that are willing to 
come to faith in Jesus and join your church, even fewer that will be willing to be discipled in, in a sense of accountability. And then even fewer that are willing to multiply. I mean, you look at even Jesus' own ministry. He had, he had, you know, masses of crowds and then maybe the 120 and maybe the 70 and the 12. I mean, I know there are different ways that you can put those numbers out there. But Jesus, even with him in his public ministry, had various degrees of people willing to make various degrees of commitment. Does that make sense? Yes. So as much as you know, I hear pastors say, well, we're going to, every person in our church is going to be discipled. Well, that may be aspirational. Uh, I don't think that it's necessarily that practical or maybe not even that biblical in the sense that if Jesus didn't have every one of his guys that came after him uh, follow that kind of command. In fact, Jesus almost would turn them away. You know, every time he, he would get a good crowd, he would say, you know, eat my flesh, drink my blood or something. And let, there go the crowd. And they go, Jesus, we were just about to make budget, you know, and, and now you say something crazy and thin the crowd out, you know. And so I just want to encourage you that this is why you need programming at all levels because you don't have everybody that's here yet right they're, they're just not there yet and so uh, you want to have a place for people to come and see you know for us this is our worship service we put it squarely in the explore phase I share the gospel every week I call people to salvation every week yeah I'm teaching people I'm teaching believers but I'm also teaching people that aren't believers yet and I want them to bring their lost friend there but then we also have uh, mid-sized groups where people can connect and they can get around the Bible and they can start to connect with the church and connect with serving in some capacity. And then we have the grow groups that actually train them in our, those resources that are at our table that help them to grow and walk with God, reach your world, invest in a few. And then those that, that multiply that, we move them over to the multiply category. And those are the ones that are really moving the thing forward. They're really going to multiply our ministry. Listen, these, these people right here, these people right here, I call the tip of the spear. They are the tip of the spear, all right? They are the ones that are going to move your ministry forward. Those are your future leaders, your future pastors, your future campus pastors, your, your future uh, elders, uh, the people that are going to pioneer new ground. They're going to go start something new around the world. That's where you get those people. And you've got to grow them up yourself. And you've got to train them yourself. And so if you're a lead pastor, you want to know these people and you want to stay close to these people because these are the people that have your back. And these are the people that are in it to win it with you and that will your, be your future staff. Uh, we have several on our staff that are, you know, just came out of our church and, and now are, are running that ministry. All, every guy on our Disciple First team were all men that were in our church that were discipled and multipliers and said, man, this, this is what satisfies me. I'm going to leave my job and I'm just going to do this full time and raise my own support. And so uh, they're passionate about it. You can't stop these people from, from multiplying. You know? <laughs> they're going to come after you if you don't, you know, because they're so committed to the cause, right? And so what I want you to understand is that as you're creating a disciple-making church, you've got to give places for people to play and to move people through. Now, if we had more time, uh, I would probably, I could talk to you about, you know, how you know, transitioning people from one stage to the next is kind of where the movement happens. And so how do you do that? But that's probably for another day or another time. Um, okay, questions about that. I know I'm dumping a lot on you, but we've been building on this. So for those of you all that have stayed with us, uh, I've given you a lot to think about. Questions, thoughts? Yes. Yeah, we don't really ever talk about us, them. We just say, where are you on the pathway? And what is your next step? So, again, if disciple is devoted, developing, and deployed, right? Then if you're, if you're in Explore, you're not even devoted yet. So we're trying to get you devoted to Jesus. We're trying to get you to cross the line of faith. And then when you do cross the line of faith, we want to make these connections with you. We want you to be baptized and join the church, get into a group, and start to serve in some way. So our focus is right there. Then these connect group leaders, we have what we call connect group leaders, that their job is to fish in there for people that haven't been in a grow group yet. So we're constantly calling people to, hey, if you haven't been to a grow group, go to a grow group. And so they're being discipled here. And then those that do that, we're saying, okay, now it's time for you to lead a grow group. And so we want to invite you into this training for leaders to help do that. So we don't ever say, 
you're not a disciple, you are a disciple. We just say, here's the pathway. Where are you? What's your next step? There's always a next step. And then we go to these people more individually and say, hey, I, I need somebody to step into this role or, you know, to help start this new thing. And I tap those guys out for leadership and so on. Does that make sense? So it, it prevents any kind of us, them. We don't, we don't have that. Okay, so um, I don't want to eat up too much of our time. So you may, Moody, make sure that I stay on course here. Okay, how do we move people from explore to connect? Um, what we do is since we say, we do several events that are explore type events and, and certain types of ministries that are really going after unchurched unchurched folks, but we also put our worship service in the explore category for the purpose that I'm preaching the gospel every Sunday and calling people for a decision and uh, we're, we want them to bring their unchurched friends there. And so um, what we do is we tell them, okay, at the end of every service, I do a little commercial every time. And I say, if you want to know how to get involved in this church, how to connect with people, how to, how to meet new friends, how to start serving, uh, there's one place you need to go and that's called Discover First. And that's a one-stop shop that you don't have to do five things. You just go to one thing. It's a seminar on a Sunday morning. If you go out in the lobby and sign up, they'll get you there, all right? And so it's that, that's the on-ramp. And when they go to that place, they've pre-registered so we know what age they're in, what life stage they're in. And so we pre-assign them to tables. And all those tables are led by connect group leaders over those age groups. So like a young adult would be sitting at a table with other young adults and the leader of that is a young adult connect group leader. And so they're meeting people in their stage of life and they say, hey, next Sunday, won't you come with us to Coffee. connect group? We do that once a month. And uh, that has worked famously. It has been great. And it just naturally moves people into those connect groups. And if I've got some connect groups that aren't really on board with what we're doing, which all of you have, all right, uh, we just don't, they don't ever come to that, that uh, discover first thing. We don't ever ask them to be a, a table host. So we just feed, uh, we do it during our, we do it on Sunday morning, what during when worship is going on. And so, because they, they don't have to give another time, we make it as convenient as possible for them to go through it. I just wanted you guys to see the big picture, what the goal of movement is, how your programming moves you through. Uh, so now what Chris is going to do is come and talk about what are your next steps. There, there's some things you've got to get done. And so uh, we're going to land the plane here in the next 30 minutes. We're going to do a quick assessment afterwards. Okay. So uh, Brother Chris, come and share with us. All right. For the next 20, 30 minutes, we want to get very practical. We want to talk about tools. We want to talk about gender, age, all that kind of stuff. Let me, let me begin with a, another horse comment. If you were here a few, few times ago, we talked about the new Triple Crown winner, Justify. But in Kentucky, apparently, there were these two um, wealthy men who had horse barns, and they were a rival. And one spring in Kentucky, they decided to enter their two best horses. Well, one of the guys said, I want to hire a crack, you know, a crack jockey, just a really good jockey, professional. So the race comes, they get on the horses, it's a steeplechase, they go off. They're at the last fence, and right at the last fence, those two rival horses, one with the professional jockey, they jump the fence and they crash. And the jockeys, the professional and the not professional jockey fall off. They get back, one of them gets the professional, he's a professional, he gets back up on the horse and runs and wins the race, and man, he is beaming. He, he showed his stuff, and he goes to the owner of the horse, and the owner has got a scowl on his face, and he's like, what, I won the race, didn't I? He said, you don't know, do you? He said, what? You won on the wrong horse. <laughs> you know, leadership that wins on the wrong horse is still a loss, and there is a leadership crisis in America, and Warren Bennis, founder of Leadership Institute at USC, points this out. He says, humanity currently faces three extraordinary threats in our day. The threat of annihilation from nuclear accident or war. The threat of worldwide plague or ecological 
catastrophe and a deepening leadership crisis in most of our institutions. Unlike a plague, he says, or nuclear holocaust, the leadership crisis will probably not become the basis for a best-selling book or a blockbuster movie, but in many ways it is the most urgent and dangerous of the threats we face because it is insufficient, insufficiently recognized and, <laughs> and little understood. So I want to I talk about that final place of connecting emerging leaders into this because that's kind of be the thing that continues to stir the pot of disciple making. You get, you get your best and you push them, you encourage them, you equip them, you challenge them. And that's what takes that top down, inside out. So when I talked earlier, we talked top down. It starts with leaders, leaders creating culture. Now, once you have that culture, to stir it up, you got to go from the inside out. And those insiders is where we're going to focus on here today. And question that I think about when I think about this in America in 21st century is where are the Churchills? Where are the Spurgeons? Instead of Whitfields and Wesleys, we see 1,500 pastors leaving currently, 2018, 1,500 pastors leaving the ministry each month because of moral failure, spiritual burnout, conflict. The divorce rate among clergy hovers at about 50%, one of the highest of any professions in America. 4,000 new churches are planted each year in America, but 7,000 a year close their door as of this current time. So what's, what's going on? The answer is simple. We have short-circuited the process because of not disciple-making leaders. We don't disciple our leaders to disciple. And so we're calling you to that. Now, four things you need to do next. Number one, you got to choose a tool. I've heard this for years. Well, all I need is a Bible. <clears throat> well, when you disciple in your church, you have two types. I'm going to talk about two types and three types. You at least have two types. You have intuitive people and non-intuitive. Your leaders that you think about right now, your spiritual leaders, some of them are quite intuitive. They can go to a coffee shop. And they can encourage prayer and they can encourage doctrinal development. They can encourage faith. They can, what I call a pat on the back or a poke in the side. They can do Hebrews chapter 10, the word for spur or the word for paraclete or encourage. They can spur or they can poke, right? They can do that and they can do that intuitively. The problem with that is if they're working with somebody who's not intuitive, how do you transfer your faith, your character, your competency? How do you multiply yourself if you're an intuitive person working with a non-intuitive person. The non-intuitive person has to have a curriculum. In the early church, <clears throat> uh, we see allusions to it in Paul's letters. They had a thing called the regula fide, a, a rule of faith. And in that rule of faith, we don't have it, but in the ancient, ancient patristic writings, they define certain aspects of that. It included ministry skills. It included mostly doctrine, but it included how to have a worship service. And we see it come to full fruition in a curriculum tool of the early church called the Didache. If you've ever read it, we do have this. It, ins it says how to do church discipline, how to have the Lord's Supper, how to do worship. It, it, it's a manual for leadership. And they use that because from the beginning of time, we, we are not all created equal. And some of us really do need a tool. Some of us really do need a tool. So we should all have a tool. It creates unity. It creates um, a common language and all that. So you need to start with the tool. I told you there's other two types and there's three types. <clears throat> Gene Getz, Fellowship Bible Church North in the Dallas area, used to talk a lot about disciple making in the 90s when I was in seminary. And he, he pointed to three Greek words that relate to three types of people. You might write this down. One is logos, L-O-G-O-S. One is pathos, P-A-T-H-O-S. And one is ethos, E-T-H-O-S. <clears throat> I train our leaders to be able to disciple any one of those three. You got a good tool, got a good tool, great. And a good tool, if you're going to evaluate a good tool, it ought to be able to connect with all three types of people. Let me explain them. A logos person is the engineer. It's the thinker. It's the one who's always asking the questions. It's the chewer. And a good tool ought to connect to the Logos person. It ought not bore the intellectual. They ought to be able to chew. Then there's the pathos. The pathos person is the crier. I'm, I'm discipling two groups right now, and both groups has at least one. They hit, a, they hit something that means a lot, and the tears start flowing. You know, one guy even puts up his hands. He's, 
We'll be at Shalotsky's. He's like, oh, brother, that's so good. You know, I got to be able to disciple that guy. These are your worshipers, right? These are, these are your bleeding hearts. And then the ethos. I struggle the most with the ethos guy. We get this word ethics from the word ethos. Pathos is passion, right? Ethos is ethics. This is the so what guy. This is the guy who's like flipping through your tool going, all right, what do I do with this? What is all, what is all, too much study, too much motion. Just point me. I need to go do something. And a good tool gives them something to do, makes it clear. And uh, maybe it puts it up front like here's the core truth and it breaks that down and a good tool does that. So that's huge. Disciple First, we wrote the Grow series for you to have a, a tool. They're designed to help you create a disciple-making culture. They effectively give, for the intuitive and the non-intuitive, they give you a tool to transfer. For the ethos, pathos, logos, they give you something mentally to chew into, ethically to grab onto, and pathos, a place to bow, right? You don't kick up your feet on the coffee table. You get on your knees in these tools. They, they have something for everybody. All right, number two. Number one, choose a disciple-making tool. Number two, you got to create, need to create a disciple-making team. Here's where you start gathering these key tip-of-the-spear men, these ladies who are winsome. <clears throat> the secret sauce for those first groups are people that not only ha are most likely going to disciple, most likely going to reproduce themselves, but they're winsome. They're gatherers. They're magnetic. They're, they're moral. They're, they're the people if... Uh, in our church, we have an elders ministry with the men. These are the men most likely. I started with these seeds. I, Jesus spent all night praying for his first seeds. And when we looked at our first seeds, I discipled the elder types. These are men who are hungry. They, the they have the heart of the carpenter. They just want the tools of the carpenter. They want to do some spiritual wood carving. They're, they're ready. Give me, I'll whittle, I'll, I'll chop, I'll, I'll, I'll polish, I'll veneer. I'll do whatever I need to do with the wood of Christianity. Just give me some tools. Teach me how to use a rasp. Teach me how to use a planer. Teach me how to use a, you get it, right? So you start with those people. Once you have chosen a tool, you're familiar with it, you need to start taking a few men through that tool, a few women. Start with leaders, start with influencers, 2 Timothy 2.2. And the things which you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these, do you know the verse, to what? Faithful men. Trust them to faithful women. <laughs> Meaning you have a pretty good idea that they're going to reproduce themselves. At the very front level, if you're here today and you're not a disciple-making culture Right? The DNA of disciple making begins with a grassroots level and you, it demands that you pour into those that you have a really good idea that they're going to reproduce themselves. Um, I, I have a pretty long concrete driveway and as I left yesterday morning to get to the airport, uh, we have 13 acres and I spent, I don't like weed eating, so I buy a lot of chemicals to kill the grasses on the fence line. Two hundred bucks a year. I buy a hundred dollar thing at thing called Tractor Supply. I don't know if you have that here, but you know, my okay, good Tractor Supply. I buy the most expensive weed killer. It kills it for about six months. But I looked in the middle of my concrete driveway. Are grasses coming up? I'm like, where do they come from? Disciple making will feel like that in your church if you take these key leaders. That little grass that grows pushes up through hard concrete of whatever your hard concrete is. Traditionalism, right? Us four no more. The chosen frozen, deacon possession, whatever, whatever it is, it'll, it'll break through that concrete. It will. It's amazing. The little engine that could, right? Create a disciple-making team. As you begin to meet with these men, walk through the material, you're discipling them. And don't, one thing that Craig says and I, I, I've said as well, is don't release until they reproduce, especially in those first generations. Don't release until they reproduce. I had one of our pastors come up, man, I got these guys. They just won't reproduce. How long have y'all been meeting? Four years. I'm like, whoa, okay, release. <laughs> right? Jesus took three, <laughs> release. All right, but don't try to hold on to those first guys and gals. Right From the beginning, it's important that you set the expectations. How do I do this? Very practically. I got two guys right now that I'm discipling, and they are elder types. 
Their character and competencies are not there. That's my job to get the character and competency through what is the Bible's answer to reoccurring sin that creates bad character? Accountability. And so we're doing a lot of accountability with these guys. I'm trying to build into them, disciple character into them. We've been meeting for about three or four months now, and, and I'm seeing fruit. Competency. How do you get competency? Consistency breeds confidence. So I'm teaching them to be consistent in their quiet time, consistent in Bible study, consistent in standing and speaking up. And I model it. We've met three months, so what is that, you know, 12 times or so? Every time we meet as we go through the tool that, that, that we use. I'm saying, hey, this question, when you're leading your own group, here's what you need to add to what you said. Hey, this question, circle it because of these six questions. This one you need to camp out on when you lead your group. I say that every time. I say that every time. And they, they pick up on it. Oh, yeah, I'm to reproduce myself using this tool you're training. This isn't, this isn't a one-stop shot. You, you're going to reproduce yourself using this tool. Okay, so if multiplication is Jesus's desire, then you really haven't made a disciple until he has made a disciple. I know that came out earlier. You can be a disciple, right? But until the disciplee becomes the discipler, the process isn't finished. When do you call someone a student? When they enroll and they're, and they're there. When are they finished and moving on into the next level? When they've graduated and yet they turn and they never stop learning. Disciple making similar. All right. Common questions on this second thing. Should I disciple women as a guy, as a pastor? Should I disciple women? Answer for me is no. Okay. But to disciple them in a first group of four or five, if you decide to do that to really have a, a launching of two or three, Right, break up the group when you go to the accountability prayer time. Let the ladies go with the ladies and the guys go with the guys. But keep that group to about four, right? Two guys and two girls and you. I've seen some people do that and there is a way to do that. I, I prefer just guys with guys and girls with girls. Question, can you have couples discipling groups? Um, I, again, would say no. Um, same issue. Um, but even bigger one, especially when, when you have no idea what the marriage dynamic there is. Uh, he might be overlording her. She might be wearing the pants, right? There, there might be an issue there. Um, just an eye, a nudge, a, a body language. You don't bring up, don't, don't open up, don't say up, don't speak up. And you're, you're creating an air of inauthenticity in many of those couples discipling group. And that's, that's a bad soil to try to start a disciple-making movement, all right? Number, last question, how large should my group be? You've heard us say over and over again, triads and quads, triads and quads. <clears throat> In our church, First Beaumont, we, we do home Bible studies. We don't have a Sunday school model. We have community groups. So we go from the crowd on Sunday morning into about 25 community groups that are as large as the house is. So my community group has um, 24 adults in it. I have a large meeting room and we have, a, it's fellowship, it's community around Bible. It's, you know, it, it's good. We meet every other week. And that is our fishing hole to go from, you know, that larger to that medium to that small D group. And a lot of our D groups have come out of my home group that meets in my home. But they're always small. They're two or three. You know, one on two, one on three, no more than one, one on four. They're small. Jesus had Peter, James, and John, didn't he? He spent three years with them, a lot of time with them. And to be fair, discipling isn't that hour and a half Bible study. It's a, it's a lifestyle. And I can't live the lifestyle of discipling with eight guys. I can do it with about four or five. And I have three daughters. I have a wife, a ministry. I teach for Liberty University. I got a lot of stuff on my plate. But these are guys I've already texted them. Uh, multiple times while I'm here in Nashville. I prayed for them. They called me last night and prayed over me on the phone. This is life. These are my best friends as I walk with them. And if your group is too large, you've missed the point of disciple making because you're not pouring into them. You're investing in them for an hour and a half. That's not disciple making. Disciple making is you invest your life into them. Got it? All right, we covered two. I got two more. But uh, any questions about these first two? It's a grow group. Okay. Exactly. Worship, 
And we do uh, some exploratory Bible studies. We have um, Celebrate Recovery is evangelistic. We do a lot of evangelism in using Explore God, which is a ministry that's it's like Alpha. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of that. Um, we go into prisons. We do a lot of stuff. But our community groups are here, and then these last two are our, our D groups. We call them D groups. We, we like them to be 12. Jesus had 12. We want 12. So I, I want everybody in our church to have a 12 and a 3. Everybody in our church, right? Now, my home group's a little bigger, but we still, even on, even on those Sunday nights when we meet every other Sunday night, we break them up into two groups of 12 or two groups of 10. And they spend about an hour with each other and, and a table of 10. So it's still, it's still 12 and 3. And you ought to know who that is. Any other questions? All right, number three, kind of going back to the chart, clarify disciple-making pathway. Once you're, you have a team of multiplying disciples in your church and you're working through a tool, right? Then for your church, begin to do the hard work of evaluating your programming and bring it into alignment with your path. Start saying no. I quoted that a couple of sessions ago, Steve Jobs. He said he's more proud of what Apple said no to than what they said yes to. We call it going Google. Google is a simple search engine. They actually have had someone on staff whose job is to make sure that that opening page of Google has less than 21 words on it, right? Simple. And so have a gatekeeper who can, you know, it should be the lead pastor, but you can outsource that to an executive pastor, somebody who's paying attention to the fact that we're not getting fat and we're not getting skinny in the sense of ignoring the the balance of all this. Um, Here are a few things to keep in mind as you begin to evaluate. Number one, when it comes to your pathway, move your disciple makers into leadership roles. Our elders, we have six of them at a time. They are leading disciplers who are second generation fruit. They have second generation fruit. Um, All of our committees, you can't be on one. We only have two. But if you're going to be on our committee, you got to have a skill that says you should be on that committee. And then you have to have been discipled at least gone through the material. If not, if you're the chair, you have to have gone through the material and you've got to have a current disciple that you're discipling, a couple of them. Like-mindedness is what's created there. Uh, Second little tip here for clarifying number three, uh, involve your leaders in evaluating the programming. And, And this is you bringing them along. This is you bringing them along. Involve your leaders and evaluating your programming. Like we did, like Craig did in the last session, remember you must determine the primary purpose for every program and place it in one of the phases of the disciple's path. Warning here, most programs are gonna fall in the connect phase and you're gonna see that you're you're pretty wide in the middle, right? Pretty wide in the middle and that's not a place to be that you wanna stay at least. Number three in clarifying the disciple making pathway, Assess what phases need more attention. Assess what phases need more attention. And then focus your energy, your planning, your prayer, right right there at that place on those existing programs that need more of your attention. Got that down? All right, number four. Remember you are trying to move people along the pathway. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Say it from the stage. You know, we, we put it on in the, in the men's restroom, in, the, in, the, in front of the urinals. It's the pathway. I've seen other churches do that, right? Whether they're using the restroom or in the coffee shop or they're in the worship service or they're at the home Bible study, wherever they're at, keep it in front of them. Keep remembering you're trying to move people along the pathway. Don't think small groups. Think sequential groups. Now, you may be thinking, I I'm not sure I know how to do all of what you just said. I didn't even get to write it down. I, I wrote so fast, I barely wrote down what you said. Our ministry, Disciple First, has a consultation aspect to it. We have consultation available for you to help you do that. If you want help along the route, you want Craig or myself or and the team to come alongside of you, we would love to help you discern where you're at and help you do it, help you brainstorm, help you figure out what to say yes and no, what to beef up and what to maybe slim down and trim down. We can do that. All right, number five, here's the last thing. And then we're going to do an an assessment. The last is cast a disciple-making vision. 
as the, as the lead pastor, cast vision. Now, it may have been a while since you've heard the language of vision versus strategy, but vision is what, what you do when you close your eyes and you picture what it looks like. Paint a picture. Vision doesn't fit on a t-shirt. Mission does. Our, our mission statement at our church is we haven't been rescued to be rescued. We've been rescued to be rescuers. And the beauty of that is you can put in any, any verb of the spiritual journey and you can see the reproduction of it. You've been rescued to be a rescuer. You've been transformed to be a transformer. You've been com- comforted to be a comforter. You, I could keep going, right? You've been equipped to be an equipper. You've been trained to be a trainer. The verbs of Christianity are like the word parent. They're verbs and nouns. Parents, parent. Disciples, disciple. Transform people, transform others. There's verbal and noun inherent in the word, and that is t-shirt worthy. All right? A vision is a painting. We have a lady in our... We have quite a few art teachers in our church and we we had a song and she did chalk art while the song was going in uh, going on it was like a five minute song and she did a whole painting of a scene and man I wept like a baby and I'm not into art I don't I don't have a lot of art but that picture she painted going with the words of the song so emotional so so cast the vision for your people of what it looks like you know what it looks like for me I'll, I'll, I'll give you two visionary type things I, I strategically have commerce. I go to the same checkout line at the same grocery store. I, I work hard at my, my gym working out, but also trying to connect. And I connected about eight years ago with a guy named Tyler. He was the manager of the local gym. Through prayer, divine appointments started showing up like crazy. And I started seeing him at Jason's Deli. Found if you ever had the, ate at one of those, that's from Beaumont, came in Beaumont. At Jason's Deli, I saw him in a movie theater. I saw him here. I saw him there. I saw him five times in two weeks, him and his wife. They come to worship. He's a gym manager, so he brings some muscle, literally. He had these big workout guys. They came into the worship service. There's like four of them. He didn't bring his wife, but I was like, are they going to beat me up? I invited them. What what is this about? I'm preaching a very, very evangelistic sermon on the order of Melchizedekian priesthood. (laughs) Yep. Dead, dead serious. I'm in the book of Hebrews. I'm ready for an altar call right now. I preach on the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus. He prays to receive Christ, gives his life to Christ. I start disciple him. I disciple him a year. He wants more. He's hungry. He enters seminary. His wife's not following him. She's not, she hasn't received Christ. He said, what do I do? I said, you've got too much family, too many comfort zones. He comes to me at Johnny Carino's and he says, what do I do? And I told him something. I said, get, get on the high dive, move out of this town and go to a seminary somewhere else and see if that connects. And she, he did. He went to Dallas Seminary, got connected at Watermark Church in Dallas, a huge, great, awesome church. They hired him after they won his wife to the Lord. And now he is the campus pastor of Fort Worth's Watermark campus. Unbelievable story. Right? I could tell you another story about discipling a guy named David who's now in ministry who also disciples people in Nepal using the same tool that we use in Beaumont. He uses in Kathmandu, Nepal, discipling. Another guy named Keaton does the same thing, moving to Nepal. Got discipled here to be a disciple there. This is a global vision. You're painting a global vision. You disciple a guy in Beaumont named Bob, and then you reach a guy named Amret in Nepal, and you disciple him to be a discipler. It paints a global, local vision for it all. All right. The problem that we often get is we don't know where to start. It won't work, right? Or some of you are like, sign me up. You're, you're ready, fire, aim, right? You haven't even aimed yet, but you're wanting to fire the gun. That's what the clips were. Yeah, it's exactly. So acknowledge that you got to do it in this order that we just said. Don't just jump into casting vision. When somebody comes up to you and they say, I'm ready, I heard your vision, and you have no disciplers to disciple them, right? Cast your vision after you've done these other four steps. And you know the pathway. And you've got a team already. Um, for, for our church, this took a year, uh, two years, before we even started really launching this as our very DNA of our church. Because at the end of a couple of years, I had a disciple-making team. We had a tool. 
we had a pathway, and then I could start engaging it. Right, you can plant seeds, you can plant seeds, but the vision really comes at the end as you are able to then put some money where your mouth is. Amen? Yes. Amen. You know, I have an unapologetic vision for this. The church of Jesus Christ is absolutely worth your sacrifice, your time, your energy, your money. It's worth you giving your life to it. And I don't make any apologies for saying you need to be discipled to be a discipler to anybody and everybody that walks through the doors of our faith families building in our relationships. Unapologetically call people to be a part of the greatest movement on this planet, the church of Jesus Christ, through the lost art of disciple making. It shouldn't be a lost art anymore once you start getting into that. It should be your very blood. It's the blood that pumps through your church's body. This thing called movement, disciple making. All right, so we want to, we want to assess now where you are on these things we've just talked about. Okay, great. Uh, real quick, let me pull you together right quick. Uh, which of these uh, four that we talked about here, which one of these is the most challenging or which one is your next step for you? Somebody share, what, what is your next, your next step? Which one do you need to do? Pathway. Pathway, got to clarify a pathway? Uh, I, I was just talking with this gentleman over here. Um, the good thing is about selecting a tool is you've got a lot of ministries here at one place that you can kind of sample and ask questions. Uh, again, if you want to look at our growth series, that's at our table. But there are lots of great tools around here. So that's, that's an advantage of being here. Creating that team, identifying who you're going to start with and who you're going to invest in and how you're going to encourage them along the way. That's going to take some work to do that. Yeah. At our church, we just use, we use our growth series. That's it. Uh, now, if some other guy wants to go, you know, <laughs> go do whatever, that's great. I can't control what people do. But as far as our church, we use a tool. And that's so that we know that the end product is what we want to produce, right? The tool is what helps you make sure that the end product is what you want. So you, any tool is great, right? But if you want to produce a certain thing, you use a certain tool. But I think it's, it's important for you to stick with certain tools. And the reason, th think about navigators, you know, they've stuck with certain tools for years or crusades stuck with certain tools. Now they, they've kind of tweaked them and developed them over the years, but they've got some basic things that have allowed them to have common language and common results. And so I think that's what the tool does for you. If you change it up, then, you know, you don't really know what you've got at the end of the day. That's my opinion. Well, if there's any consolation, of course, Jesus had guys that he invested a long time in that dropped out. Uh, and Paul, Paul as well. Yeah. I, you know, it's hard to say what is the, the average, you know. I, I will say, though, in my own life that, you know, I've had a, a third that won't multiply you know, for whatever reason. Sometimes people are out for different reasons. You know, sometimes they're out because of sin in their life. Sometimes they're out because they're just being rebellious and, and dumb. You know, some people are out uh, because they're distracted by other things. They're busy and they, can't, they just can't commit. Right? Yeah, and so I think you just, you got to realize that there's going to be that margin of error there and that just because they're out now doesn't mean that we'll be out later too. I think you need to not burn the bridge and yeah. keep it open, keep the door open. If you've got got a pathway, if they're if they're not ready to be here, then you just make sure they're covered here, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. then they can resurface back. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. Just don't give up on them. You know, even Paul asked for Mark at the end of the, in, in his life. Amen. Now, now the other side is, and every time I've had one fail me, I do reconsider my own part of the problem. Yeah. Maybe I chose them too quick. Right. Maybe they weren't ready. I chose them too early. Yeah. Maybe, I, you know, we, we always tell people before you choose who you're going to disciple, Jesus prayed all night. You better pray because right. you not, might not be the guy to disciple them. Right. And I had one bell out on me uh, three years ago, and it hurt. I always take it personal, always. But I, because of what he said, you know, giving them, hey, it's just not time. Hey, wait a year and let's reengage it. And it happened to be there was a better time of the day than when I could do it. He found a guy, one of our other pastors, discipled him at 6 o'clock in the morning. And, man, he thrived in that. He wasn't ready and the time wasn't right. If I'd have burned my bridges with him or beat him up over it, you know. And it also made me then, on the next two or three iterations of it, I just spelled out my call to discipleship. Here's what it's going to take. Yeah, exactly.
Yeah. Right now, yeah. That, that's why it stings a little bit more. Yeah, yeah we're with you, brother. We're with you. I thought you were going to say you reevaluate and now you're doing 6 a.m. discipleship. <laughs> The next session that we do is after lunch. And what we're going to do is we're going to do a panel discussion with uh, Chris and I, Lance Kroll, who is uh, another disciple maker from Texas. And we're going to do an open Q&A discussion. So a lot of the things that are now brewing in your mind, we're going to just we're just going to have a big, nice discussion about whatever you want to talk about. And uh, so it'll be fun. It's unscripted. and it'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. So we're doing that in the final session. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. Make sure to download a copy of a free ebook by Disciple First called Invest in a Few at discipleship.org slash disciplefirst. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker. Disciple Maker.